Friends, we're so glad you're back with us for Protect Your Noggin. This is a place for us to strengthen ourselves, get boldness, get a little healing, and also to oppose those sorts of forces that are hurting the vulnerable people, including ourselves, in this world. Now, today is one of my favorite topics. It's one that is a guilty pleasure, really. Uh, I'm sure you might know a couple folks who are interested in the field of religious studies. They might not admit it to you. But if they do, there's a chance that they're interested in the work of Carl Gustav Jung, the psychoanalyst who had a lot to say about myth, allegory, folklore, dream interpretation, synchronicity, a bunch of interesting stuff. But what we're going to be looking at today is just one concept. That is the concept of the shadow self. We're going to look at how to identify our shadow selves and why that matters for our own well-being and the well-being of people around us. In the first segment, though, we're just going to be looking at the, the issue of shame and guilt and how religious communities can often work with shame to control us, and yet uh, we deal with these issues of guilt that sometimes people won't admit. That's the first segment. In the second segment, we're going to look at a particular speech from Carl Gustav Jung, who spoke to Swiss pastors on the importance of identifying and facing their own shadow selves. And then in the third segment, Stacy and I are going to play a little game with you that we invented to help you identify in a fun way your shadow self and maybe get a little bit of healing. And then in the final segment, we're going to be taking some questions and comments from a listener. All right, get ready. Here we go. Welcome, friends, to the Protect Your Noggin podcast. We offer lessons in outfoxing religious wolves so that we can all find deep peace and freedom. Go to our website at protectyournoggin.org where you'll learn how to be a part of the show, find show notes, and then also check out our other resources. Just so you know, we often address sensitive subjects that could bring up past traumas because we are not afraid to dig deep. But don't worry, we got this. Oh, Stacy, I am so glad to be recording here in the mobile studio. We're in St. George, the truck camper. Now we're in the hills, just 15 miles out from where little me was born. I was born just 15 miles down the hill. We we're kind of in the mountains, but you, you were saying that sometimes people are uh, kind of contentious about this question of where the mountains are. Well, yeah, because when we lived in, uh, we're, t- we're in Colorado, by the way. Yes. And um, when we lived in Colorado in the past, we had lived in Evergreen. And so the folks that were in Denver told us, you know, they'd say, oh, you live in the mountains. And then when we would go up further into the mountains where we were in Breckenridge or Aspen or whatever, they we would if we'd said we lived in the uh, that mountains. That sounds like we do a lot of ritzy skiing. No. We do a lot of, uh, we, we, we have never been to Aspen, actually. I have. I mean, I, I You've have. You've been to Aspen? Yes. Uh, without me. But but the point is, yes, when we're up in the mountains, I'm sorry. I but when you're in the mountains, if you refer to Evergreen as being in the mountains, they, they laugh. They laugh. <laughs> um, and right. it's basically considered Denver. Yeah. Um, like but we really, hills. but for real, like we had snow, we had elk, you in, know, the <laughs> elk in the backyard. So uh, anyway. I think we're about 10,000 feet. I think that counts. I'm seeing some peaks around us. But the main reason you love being here is that you get almost like a double rainbow, you get a double dose of one of your favorite things that happens in fall. You love fall. You I love, love fall. It's my favorite wind season. Fall. I love wind. But the icing on the cake is wind in fall in the mountains blowing through. The changing aspens. Oh my goodness. And so we were in Leadville. 
We were. And so we were higher in elevation and the leaves changed a little faster. Right before your eyes. Right before our eyes. We were literally staying there and we could just see them. We're like, wait a minute, those are green. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, you know, they go from the yellow to oranges. And then we come down here a little bit, you know, a little bit lower in elevation, but still quite high, as we say in the mountains. Mm -hmm. Um, And I get to watch the aspens change all over again down here too. Maybe maybe the aspens down down in Denver and Boulder are going to change next week. Maybe (laughs) we'll slowly crawl down there. But it's hard to go into civilization, even though we wanted to go and get maybe a, a... a brewery going where we could fill our growler. It's a big growler. It's a, and, and it's it is, not just a re, yeah, any old growler. It's it's a, a growler on steroids. Yeah, I guess yeah, it's got a handle. But the reason handle, we like this it's, thing, it's like I don't know. It holds at least what the amount it's of like two, growlers. two growlers. But what's great about it is we haven't been drinking as much just out of like habit because what we do is we find places then we fill the growler and we think of it as a celebration instead of just calories to keep pounding uh, you right, know through right. in the afternoon. Right, right. Well, and, and you know, we're here where we don't have any stores nearby. Right? I mean, we, we could go into town. We, we probably should to. go into town because we're now down to ramen and fish sticks. <laughs> yeah, so. our, our fridge is getting quite empty. <laughs> but Plus, isn't it beautiful? we're running low on water and need to dump the tanks. So. But it's beautiful. It's, beautiful. <laughs> it's absolutely The dog's gorgeous. having fun. No, no getting eaten. But that's not why we're here, Stacey. Tell us where we've been and what we're really doing here. So in episode two, we explored discernment versus judgment. Um, and just as a little review, uh, like judgment is condemnation or like a disapproval uh, with contempt. You know, like you just you can almost like picture that the face of somebody that has judgment, right? Yes. Often religious <laughs> people, they used to talk about like the puritanical scowl. You right, know. Mm-hmm. right. But or you've seen that church lady look over her shoulder at That's the pew all. behind her because your kids were acting up or scowling. something. Yeah. So you know that you know that that look. I know Any- it well. <laughs> um, and because of 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 judgment, we sometimes are afraid to use discernment, where discernment is actually a very healthy tool. We don't want to be the judgy person. Person, right? So instead we almost stay away from all of that or at least pretend like we stay away from it, right? right? Um, but instead it really is healthy for us to have discernment. And discernment looks at the truth. It calls a thing a thing, whatever that is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you do it with compassion, um, and and it lacks that like negative emotion or feeling right. that you have for it. So it's like a diagnosis, yeah. So it's like yeah, you're just you can stay sort of objective about it, right? Let me give one example. Kierkegaard, I think it was, who said that an enemy is someone you love who wishes you harm, hmm. and a friend is someone that you love who also shares a common goal with you, and you're cooperating towards. Uh, goodness, truth, and beauty together. Mm-hmm. So the idea then is that even our enemies could have our love, but we will still identify them as what they are in a particular context. Right. If someone's trying to steal something from us. If they aren't meaning well. Right. We can have compassion on them, but we also need to be recognizing That this person is unhealthy Indeed. or this person is causing harm. Indeed. And so that kind of brings me to like what we're going to talk about today, which is shame versus guilt, because shame is related to judgment um, yes. in a way, and, and guilt is related to discernment, as we will define it. Right. And the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein would say that language is determined by its use. That is, the definition of a term is going to, to depend on how people use it. This is what we're doing here, is not telling you how to use the terms, no. but we're going to tell you, dear listener, 
uh, with much love, we are so grateful for you to be here with us on episode three. <laughs> in any case, but you, dear listener, this is how we're using it in this at least specialized way so that we can be very clear because these get tricky when we talk about guilt and shame, especially when it comes to shenanigans. Right. And so shame is a negative feeling that someone or something else is imposing on you to control you. And I say something because it could be a community, it could be church itself. A narrative, an ideology, yeah. a political platform. So again, it's some it's like it's a it's a tool of manipulation. It's something mm-hmm. to control you. It's it's something that somebody imposes on to I you. I will agree that there are sometimes especially in hunter-gatherer societies where shame can be very valuable. That is, when you don't have a judicial system and a prison system. So there are times when it can be very helpful to say, especially like when there's a scarcity of food, say, if you don't share, we're going to shame you, but what are we still doing? We're still trying to control you, in this case for the good. So the control is not necessarily bad, but generally speaking, we're going to say that shame is something we want to let go of. And even if you're a hunter-gatherer who has been caught stealing, the best way to move forward is to recognize your guilt and then release the shame, as we'll see. So what's guilt, though? Yeah, so guilt really is just a a fact of wrongdoing. And so it's just something that you just... realize, you know what, I've, I've done something, I've harmed somebody, I've, you know, and so there is guilt in that. It, and, and then by recognizing that first, then you can move towards, mm-hmm. move towards healing. One of the things that can be really frustrating to a young person, even at a very basic level, is being told that what happened didn't happen. Right. I just remember a something, memory you have, yeah, yeah, like a memory that you have. It could be not necessarily a deeply traumatizing one, but just a memory that maybe was negative. And then let's say your parents say, no, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is so frustrating. Right. And the, the worse the offense or the greater the, the scarring from that event, and you couple that with the more somebody is going to deny that that thing happened. This is horrendous for a person to be able to process through it. So it doesn't really help anyone to reject guilt. Now watch this, friends. I'm going to blow your mind. You could be shameless and really guilty. We see these people all the time. (laughs) Psychopathic narcissists, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, You could have somebody who feels shame and is not guilty. We discussed this on episode two, I believe, where people would feel somehow like the the mark of Cain on them from God, where they didn't, they were abused, but they then took upon themselves the shame. As if God was somehow basically setting them aside for this or whatever, as, as if like it was God himself, though, imposing this on them and not the person that did it as much because God allowed it to happen. You could come to uh, an awareness of the guilt that you have. And maybe because you're exposed, maybe because you've had a change of heart, you could have shame and guilt. But the main thing is, for a person who understands this idea of unconditional love that we want to tease out on this show, is that it's perfectly natural to be able to admit guilt and still bathe, marinate, embrace the unconditional love of the holy, of God, of each Mm -hmm. other, you know. So we can unconditionally love people, but also not deny guilt. We can forgive, we'll get to this on another episode, but forgiveness implies guilt. If I say to you, I forgive you for wearing that hat, Stacy, mm-hmm. then, <laughs> then I'm, you might be mad. I, yeah, what trespass did I, did <laughs> right. I cross to, that I, when I wore it? Right? right, and the biggest problem is, especially in religious communities, especially in Christian religious communities, is that sometimes we want to jump to forgiveness as if we just take that guilt piece and bury that in a way that says we're going to deny 
the effects, the reality, and all of that. And and also, unfortunately, we often internalize shame, mm-hmm. and it even for not thinking about it, right? Healing comes from dispelling that internalized shame when there was no guilt. Let me think an analogy here. Um, I, there's a story that you have um, in the past that happened on a bus, right? To kind of tease out the the shame versus guilt. And oh. Do you remember? Yes, I was, I was in the um, seventh grade, and there was this eighth grader who was, who was a bully, and he led a bunch of bullies in the back of the bus to hassle this kid who sat in the front seat of the bus. He was a nice terrible. kid, but he was, yeah, he was you know, seen as a nerd by these kids, and they just would howl out throughout our drive home on the, in the bus. As we would ride, he, they would just hassle him and say things about his mother. Now, I was in a, in a situation then that shame and guilt played in. How do you think shame and guilt played in for old, uh, or for little young Jeff Mallinson? Uh, I'm sitting there, I'm in the middle yeah. row, and I'm conflicted. Well, of course, you would feel guilty if you didn't intervene and help the poor kid. Perfect. So my guilt would be, and in fact, if I didn't help this kid, then I would be guilty right. in a way for not sticking up for him. That would right. be a fact. There are going to be very strong reasons why I didn't. Right. That are maybe understandable, but I would still be guilty and of not helping him And it would be related out. to shame. And shame would be, so shame would, would play in when, if you get made fun of for sticking up for that individual, or, right. or if you're not very good at the fight itself, and then you yourself lose the battle. Right. So now shame is the thing that's scaring me. I'm not, sh- I'm not scared at this moment of getting hurt from a fight. I was wrongly under the impression that Yoda taught that, that size matters not so that I could fight this kid because I believed in my cause. None of, zero out of nine times did it work. I got off the bus. The bus driver pulls over. The bus driver gets out to watch. This is unbelievable. This the, is obviously clearly oh, man, not 80s, happening man. today. Yeah. Everybody, I don't know. The all bus the, drivers don't, they were never Middle school anyway. was hell. Yeah, hell. I'm sorry. It was like prison. I got some Yours kid was broke the worst. his hand on my back. He broke his hand on me. He hit me so hard and then he was mad at me. That's another story. So I'm on, I'm on the corner here, and I always say what I'm supposed to say. I have this speech that I always do, which is, I'm going to beat you within one inch of your miserable life. You're going to pray to God to kill you because you're going to be in so much pain, but he won't because he's getting you ready for the hell that I'm about to send you to, and this sort of thing. And, and then, then he just picked me up by the collar, and that was the last I remembered <laughs> until I woke Don't up with, with – No, it's funny enough. No, with, it's not. With it's blood sad. in my face. Terrible. With blood in my face. And these girls I kind of liked – they were laughing at me because I lost. Now, I would say, I know there's a lot of things where kids are wrong, but... So now you're humiliated. I thought, I thought they would actually at least be proud that I stuck up for some kid. Like, at least I... I'd be proud of you. Hey, thanks, babe. That's why we got married. But now here I am. I'm, I am now... Now, why are they doing this? They need to make sure that they are not associated with the losers, the dork and the kid who got beat up for defending the dork. And it's very important that I did get beat up because it established the hierarchy. It established the authoritarian universe that was being created by these, these monsters known as eighth graders. Well, and think about it. If you win that fight, then it's probably on you to like, you know, pick the next fight so that you can keep your status. Oh, I guess. Yeah, like <laughs> no. King of the Hill. I'm just kidding. Primates are anyway, weird, weird uh... creatures. But, all right. There you go. That's a great example of it. Now, it also plays, though, into whether or not people will even tolerate the conversation of church, religion, and spirituality. 
Yeah, you were you were actually asked to speak to a bunch of pastors. Basically, they kind of had an, a question on their mind, like, why are the kids leaving the church? Right? How do we, you know, grow? Or how do we keep the youth? And how do we grow more youth? You know, have them come into the church? And I agreed that I would do this. And Dan came along. He was doing another part of it, and we were going up to Canada. And as we were doing this, I'm, I'm realizing I have no good answer to how we can keep kids in the church. What? How do we keep them in the church? There's this this hemorrhaging, and I mean, I don't have an answer to this question. And more importantly, I, I'm not really a guy that goes out and gets people to come to church. So let's figure this out. <laughs> I get home one day, and you know. Tell the good listener, Stacey, about the atrium. It's hard to explain why the atrium is such a magical place in our family. Oh, it's funny. You know, in all the different places that we've lived, there's always like a spot where everybody sort of, we, we can have three bedrooms, it doesn't matter, and we're all hanging out in the living room or yeah. whatever. Well, in this particular place that we live um, right now, we have the atrium, and that's where everybody congregates. And it's like, it's like this... It, it, there's no obviously there's no roof over that part of it it's kind of like a hole in the middle of the house um mm-hmm. of being outside yet you're yet we're inside so it really is like a it's a fun safe place and our kids friends love hanging out there we hang out there we with, hang it's out a place there to converse with the kids usually we have most of our best family discussions Always. there at the atrium it's interesting it's like what Lao Tzu said about the Tao the Tao is like this empty space in the middle of the 10,000 things or it's he says, Lao Tzu says, the cup is important because of the emptiness inside of the cup that can contain the liquid. Right. So all of these... All the magic happens. All the magic happens in the empty space in with no roof. Space. So I'm paying all this money for that nonsense there. It's basically <laughs> an alleyway with a roof over it. And if we were to purchase it, we would never get out of debt. I mean, forever and never. <laughs> Yikes, yeah. Um, so we're not going to. Or that's why we're living in a truck right now. But to, to try that out. But the thing is that, that in that... In that place, I came home one day after I was worried that I don't really have any clue how to get kids to come to church. I figured, well, I'm going to try. I'm going to try to do it. <laughs> and now I need. <laughs> now I must say. Yeah. So you see, you, basically, you, you come into the house. You see that the kids are there. You're like, wait a minute. This is the this is the perfect. They're they're I've got college a focus group. They're college age students. Twenty two. It's my my son, my oldest son, and his fiance. And there's a young woman that's their friend. She's lesbian and non-religious, and then their other friend who's non-religious, and he's a musician and dude, okay? <laughs> I mean, a dude, dude, he's cool. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, and I remembered, like, sitting there uh, with you basically, you basically said to them, like, I'm, I'm going to talk to you about this Jesus dude, and if I, mm-hmm. you know, if you like what I say, like, would you go to church, right? And now, I must say, you normally, like, you don't, use the the kids friends as an opportunity I don't, <laughs> no. I don't i don't do you, a hard sell you talk you talk religion all day right the last thing you need to do is come home and do it with we your still kids talk friends. religion but i'm not selling it i'm not a salesman that's what i'm i I'm guess that's what i'm bleed. trying to i'm just say. trying to bleed out the love and see if they <laughs> sniff some love anyway but you you will always engage in conversations yes. if people have questions but you don't sit there and try to like you're not gonna Plus, i think they goal. were eating some of my food i think they owed me no no no, no. they didn't owe me <laughs> anyway. anything so i was really excited to that, talk to him. Yeah. So no, no, I no, no, no. This was not a tit for tat. I really was interested. So, so, so I said, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you, kids. I'm gonna give you a pitch about Jesus. Okay, I'm gonna give you a pitch about Jesus. And if you like it, will you come to church with me? And let me tell you, their answers were really interesting. The first the young woman, she said nothing at first. She just laughed, <laughs> but it wasn't a derisive laugh. It wasn't a. It wasn't like she. She's respectful. She likes us. I think she thinks we're kind of cool. Oh, she does, definitely. I think so. We hang out. But 
Why did she laugh? She laughed because it was so unthinkable. The, the prospect of going to church was so unthinkable that there was really nothing that I could say that was going to work. Now, the dude, the dude, he was almost more terrifying from the perspective of, could you trick somebody into coming to church? <laughs> right. Because he said um, that it wasn't even, it wasn't like he was an angry atheist that was ex something fundamentalist. He wasn't somebody who was... There was, was an indifference. It was such an indifference that it, like, it didn't even move the little needle on his, on his emotions. And I, I saw that, and I asked him, well, why not? He says, because it's not a wager worth considering. Hmm. Uh, what do you mean? That's awful. What do you mean? It's not, it's not a wa-, he said, it's not a wager worth considering. I thought, well, what, what, what do you mean by this? Like, well, wager? He says, the, the good that could come of it if I got roped into, say, a Christian religion. The, the, the benefits, what I see in other people isn't enough to entice me to waste my time even for odd, one yeah. Sunday morning, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to go be bored on a Sunday morning because whatever they got, I don't, I don't need it. All right. Now and that, that, that really stings ooh, to us because we spent So, so, but back, but back to the young, young woman, uh, what was her response? Like, so I, I she, you know, she had basically, there was a way where she said, you know, if I had heard that earlier, perhaps, you know, maybe, but it's like that ship has already sailed. Yeah. So. It was kind of like, oh, I like, like that story yeah. you told about Jesus. That's cool. That's, that's like, that's, that's I rad. Kind of, I wish I had heard it that way. Yeah. You cool. Know? I'm like, okay, so you want to come? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> but, and again, like, and then the reason though, that basically we were able to kind of come to with further discussion essentially is that often these kids they they see church that they just it gives out shame but it itself is guilty that was the big thing we took away from it and now i want you to please dear listener especially if you're if you're devout if you've been involved in religious community for a long time and by the way when i say this side issue in catholicism religious means monk or nun so please dear catholics i'm with you i i understand that language i'm talking Jesus freakish language. I'm talking evangelical language here. So religious community, just broadly, if you're in one of those communities, one of the things that you find is in the old days, especially Protestant churches said to themselves, well, we've got to convince those, those hooligans out there, those bad kids, that whatever they've done, they can still come and be forgiven just come just as you are, and you can still be part of church, right? You could come to skate church. We might even have tattoos eventually. We, like, you know, we keep pushing the envelope. And the unfortunate thing is, is like, look, they, they really do, when, from my experience at least, they, church really, people really enjoy the testimonies. And, they, and, and it's almost like the further somebody has come and then sort of gotten everything in order and given it up all to God or whatever, and mm-hmm. then have, you know, dedicated their life or whatever, um, you know, that like that testimony is what it's like gold mm-hmm. to them. You know, they, you want to hear somebody that's had it really bad and the worst and the darkest and deep, you know, the darkest that they have been the better in a right. way. Um, and to show that who they are now, go Google the name Mike Warnke to see how this could get way out of hand. Mike Warnke was a youth speaker that started talking about his involvement in heavy metal and Satanism. And people loved it so much that he kept elaborating and elaborating until basically the FBI got in on this uh, back in the day and started to research the question of satanic ritual sacrifice of children and, and, and these sorts of things. And ultimately, the FBI concluded that it was fabricated, mm. that it was largely, you know, 
missionary kids listening to to death metal that were kind of concocting this this world. In any case, not well, that, that there are people. That actually people makes me feel so. better. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was the milk cartons. There was all this. But going. it is. But but Mike Warnke kind of elaborated on these things that, that never happened because, and I, I feel compassion for him because he got a bigger audience. The bigger yeah. his sin, the you know, if you used to drink the and now the story. you don't drink, that's kind of an okay story. Heard it, mm-hmm. right? But if we used to be part of sex magic rituals and and a death cult and Satan worship, but and, God uh, showed you the error right, of ways. That's a guy we want to have out to camp. Speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, you're right. Right, the testimony's big, but so the the church often says that they are welcoming, yeah. But you literally have a certain window to get your act together. That's yes. been my experience, yes. at least. I, you know. It's kind of a bait and switch. Now it's like, yeah, you can, you could have been anything, and in fact, the worse you were, the better. But now, you got to show be in how your life has been changed. But again, dear listener, now watch this. Again, in the old days, the old paradigm was the righteous people, the church, the good guys, were going to go reach out to the bad guys, the hooligans, the rock and roll kids, the the bikers, the the kids with the tattoos, and we're going to, in in mercy and grace, we're going to bring them into the good guy team. Okay, and we just need to convince them that there's enough gospel even for them. That was one of the the you know the kind of upbeat ways of the Jesus freaks, you know, baptizing in Laguna Beach in the seventies. You know, that right. was that scene. But that is not what these young people communicated no, to us. The opposite. Yeah. It's exactly the opposite. It's that the church is the bad guys, and that one of the main reasons not to go to church isn't because you have to clean up your act, but because you have to get in bed with a bunch of people who have been defrauding spiritually abusing, sexually abusing. That's how they yeah. see it. And in, in, in other things, I mean, all right? the news stories were rampant, especially at the time that you were asking these questions. And it was like, why? Why? They, the they think church, the church, church is guilty. allowed abuse. And then they also stigmatize people who try to report it. Right. And if you're paying attention, that's not a safe place. No, not so. Why, yeah. Why, why decide to jump into that? Right. right, right. If you're already like, in that I've pool. I've got enough trouble whatever. already. I don't need to go. <laughs> What else? Like, wh- you know, the other thing too is that it's bigoted. They they just don't care about people outside of the, their own group or their own selves. Pause, dear listener. You might every Sunday say, "Have a a whole you know wringing of the hands." How can you get more diversity? We're not saying this. We're saying that the logo has been usurped by the bigots in the minds of at least the young people that we've been able to survey from outside of you know, a religious upbringing. Right. And then another aspect they had mentioned was the anti-intellectual part where they, you know, that the church is just dismissive of science sometimes. If they believe, and they, a lot of them do, if they believe that ecological crises are upon us and the church is doing anything to be in bed with those who deny it, climate science, other things, then they see it as something that's actually a threat to their existence or right. their well-being. If they think that the church even in controversial areas like embryonic stem cell research, uh, certainly controversial for religious communities, if they are worried about diabetes or other you know, potential debilitating illnesses that they might experience as they, as they go through life, that the, that the church wants to get in the way of healing mm-hmm. because of their anti-science bent, then they would put it in more of like the Christian science or the Jehovah's Witness kind of category of people who are almost immoral because Christianity entails a rejection of, of, you know, mainstream science. Even sometimes students have said that there's a, there's a connection in their minds between fundamentalist Christianity and anti-vaxxers, you know, that there's a, that there's a kind of similar way of thinking. Whether that's true or not, again, that's what these students and others have kind have of picked up us, on. Yeah. yeah. And then why they don't want to be a part of that. 
And I think that the church needs to to recognize that this is happening, right? Yeah. And that we have made mistakes. Did we mention John Gottman yet on this show? We have. Okay. So back to that. But briefly. Briefly. And what we, I think we were talking again on the same topic of defensiveness. And, and how would you put that in relationship again, just to make sure the listeners... Well, basically, one of the number one killers of a relationship is defensiveness. So if, if somebody is, is coming to you with a problem and you, you, know, you aren't listening to their concerns and instead you're worried about defending yourself or why this happened or whatever um, without first kind of acknowledging their, their pain or their situation, then that, like I said, it's the number one killer of a relationship. And it's never going to get better because you respond to complaints or concerns with. As if they're attacks. So you're counterattacking. Right. So in any case, the church will often circle the wagons. And we talked about that. It was on episode two. That the church will often circle the wagons when they have people criticizing something. Again, as if it's their own identity at stake. And it's as if salvation of the world might be at stake. Right. But they're going to then push back or fight against this. So if, if you were, let's say, a church worker, and you encountered these two students that were in my atrium, if you were to say, well, no, I'm now angry at you because that's not true— that's not going to convince them that it's not true. It's right. going to convince them that you are not really coming to terms with, in some cases, what is true, right? Right. And the same thing as often, you mentioned yeah. as a parent denying you know, right. earlier, how you mentioned a parent denying a pain that you've had, that not being defensive, listening yeah. to the problem. If, these young, if this young man and young woman felt excluded by the community of, say, Christians, and those Christians say, no, we don't exclude you, then all they're going to do is say, well, they That's... both exclude me and fail to understand my perspective on what their rhetoric sounds like to me. Right. So again, you don't have to admit that that, that is your motive to be bigoted as, a, as it, a, a member of a community. And it might not even be, that, that might even not be happening at your, your church. But to understand that you carry that label. Yeah, is important. Is important. And also that you carry the label perhaps because there is some way in which you're not aware of those connections, right? So it doesn't matter sometimes whether or not you are aware of your own accidental values, implicit values, whether people are misreading you. Sometimes if you want good communication, being open without being defensive is really healing to a marriage. It's healing to a cultural conversation. But here's the thing. This is what I, I think is a real problem, at least in the last decade and a half, of the way churches have responded from the Catholic Church to the Southern Baptists. Here, here's where I'm at with this. Transparency. There has been a glaring, if that makes sense, a glaring lack of transparency and this is not just uh, an incidental part of the problem for onlookers. This is a huge problem. And why do you think that there's that lack of transparency? Check this out. Because they don't take the gospel seriously enough. They don't take the unconditional love of God seriously enough, which is, if they really trusted in the unconditional love of God, then they wouldn't have to constantly be defensive and closing off the obvious things that they need to look at. Right. It's like once you realize you're going to be, you know, prosecuted or something, you kind of clam up. You don't sometimes say sorry to people you've offended so that they can't sue you. You know, you just kind of, right. everything if you is admit defense guilt, If yeah. you admit guilt, then, then, yeah. then there's consequences. But if they could just identify the guilt, this could lead to healing. This would be really important because most people know, even though we're going to show and we will continue to look at the ways in which religious communities are especially susceptible to authoritarian thinking, to covering up bad behaviors. Even though that's true, 
most people in society realize that we've got problems all over politics, Hollywood, and, and athletics. Right. So uh, just in general, right, in life. L- let me give you a couple examples of how identifying guilt can lead to healing. One is the dentist. I mean, we, I, and I hate going to the dentist. Isn't yeah. it funny? Like when you go to the dentist, isn't it true that so often you're going to, you're going to hear about how you didn't floss your teeth. You yes. didn't, you know, you didn't brush enough Very judgy. or whatever. And, and so I don't need that. Like, and it seems like the more judgmental the dental assistants are or whoever, you know, it's like the less truthful I want to be with them. Right. Right. I'll, I'll downplay how many cigars I've had or whatever. <laughs> whatever right? More importantly, I'll, I'll go less yeah, often. Right. I, I, I'm resistant to go. I don't mind the pain. Uh, I, I like, I, I kind of like relaxing and watching CNN. They, it's great. But, but you had a pain that was welling up in your mouth. But I didn't want the judgment partly, but also I didn't want to deal with what it meant to acknowledge that this was going to, involve an extraction. I was right. pretty sure this is going to involve an extraction. I couldn't afford it. Uh, I, I didn't want to go through it. We were on a way. I was going to go speaking at like five or six places later that month. I didn't want to have a mouth all messed up, but, but I had to go and it worked out fine. Well, you know? and ultimately you, painful. you get, you, yeah, you become, you get in so much pain right, yeah. that you, you can't deny it. It's yeah. Well, there was another thing too that happened. We were, <laughs> we were just having the worst time when we first got out on the road out towards Chicago, I think we were. Well, we were heading towards, yeah. We were, we're in the Midwest. Chicago, or... And for some reason, we could not keep, we couldn't keep the batteries going. We have this solar panel. So, we, because we have a couple, we have three different batteries, right? And a yes. solar panel. Right. Um, and you kind of had a sneaking suspicion. Well, one, you replaced a battery that was outside and easy to get to. Yes. There's so an you, easy access battery. So you're like, okay. Fix that. And then, and it's, summertime so with that battery and the solar panel the power is staying pretty good right but i don't know how to access the other two batteries and you but you knew there was another two batteries and you knew that it wasn't quite holding the charge i was gonna have to lift the trick i was gonna have to lift the shell off the truck right and i was just afraid to do it on the road because i hadn't done it we bought it right we got on the road i'm off speaking i don't have time to have my truck not be able to fit back together <laughs> right in, so, in the middle of some truck stop in in Iowa so instead while we were there um you know camped um all of a sudden at night when like there's a beeping happens because when it once it hits a certain level um, right. of lowness or whatever, then <laughs> yeah, so once the battery, <laughs> the battery, battery level goes nine point or eight point eight, <laughs> it starts beeping and then what starts beeping? Well, there's a first a battery beeping warning and no, then no, there's the there's the carbon monoxide. Yes, it's the carbon monoxide warning. Warning, that not that there's carbon monoxide, but but that it it can't dying. tell you and yeah. it, it can't tell you that there's going to be a problem when there's a problem, so it alerts you so that you know that it's no longer reliable. So I'm about to grab a hammer now watch the metaphor here because friends. it just keeps beeping it's kind of like it's like water drop torture you know like if, if something happens kind of at a regular interval that and it it can be really painful and it mm. can get inside you and especially when you're trying to sleep right and this yeah. is right before the next day you're supposed to start going to be, you're supposed to go be ready to speak right uh, yes, and yes. we aren't getting any sleep no sleep uh we decided to go into the front part of the truck so that yes. we could just not hear but the it was noise because we in couldn't because we couldn't disconnect the the carbon monoxide detector for some reason anyway and well, it was I late yeah. we were well, just, I would have had to get the batteries that were ultimately we found out were underneath there but my point is on the the metaphor watch what's going on here just think about this truck as the like a church mm-hmm. there's a beep going off right and my reaction is 
Just stop the beep. I hate this beep. <laughs> this beep is the problem. The, but the beep it's is... It's just a symptom yeah, of the bigger problem. And is a very healthy alert to help me to say we need to deal with the problem. And now, prior to the beep, there were other little symptoms that we chose to ignore because mm-hmm. it just seemed too complicated. And then all of a sudden, it blew up on us to where we couldn't not admit it and right. figure it out, right? And and, and it do something or else it was unlivable. The moral of the story, friends, is even though it's difficult, you're going to have to deal with it. Face it one time, one, yeah. day, one day or another. Yeah. Like, it's it's just a matter of time. And I'm glad that my detector is in shape. So we got to the the, the very nice gentleman who, who helped us out. He showed me how to quickly uh, undo a... a a weird modification. This is the problem on my, on my right. truck camper so I can back it out. And well, we were affixed, but when we, when we opened it up, we saw that there were a couple batteries under there that were looking pretty dangerous. <laughs> I mean, bad. they were just oozing, you know? <laughs> yes. And, but the thing is, so that's that thing that we do where I know darn well that there's a problem under there. But I don't want to deal with it. And it literally was solved within a half an hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it just took mm-hmm. lifting up the trailer, popping in the two new batteries, yep. and we were back in business. And we wouldn't have missed that whole night's rest if we hadn't have, you know, if we had just bitten the bullet and done it before. So spiritually, we're too afraid to look under the hood. We're, we're afraid of what we're going to find. It could be how we taught, or it could be something bad that's been going on. But now here's the real kicker it's very often, especially in. Christian circles, Catholic and Protestant, especially, this idea of a certain kind of self-loathing or a deep sense of shame that has somehow been what's picked up mm-hmm. through catechesis education in the church. Now, I know this, even though it's not like peer-reviewed research at an anecdotal level, and it's not peer-reviewed research from what Rabbi Brian did in Denver, but let me tell you about it. In about 2003, I met this dude named Rabbi Brian uh, Judaism your way, interesting guy. But what he had done was he conducted a survey of people from various religious traditions, Jewish, Catholic, uh, Christian, uh, Protestant, rather. And what he found was that the there's this common theme where people's official teaching was very different from what people ended up hearing from going to church. Right. Now, I don't remember exactly what it was with, with Judaism or Catholicism offhand, but I do remember that for Protestants, it was strange that there would be people who had on their websites these teachings about the unconditional love of God, uh, redemption, forgiveness, these kind of positive themes, but the main theme that they picked up was that they were not good enough, that they were filled with shame. Mm. And I think that this is partly because of a very common misunderstanding in Protestantism about the nature of humanity, or what is called in theological circles, theological anthropology, which means the nature of humanity from a theological perspective. Now, if you're familiar at all with the Reformation, you probably realize that both the Reformed giant John Calvin and Martin Luther, the guy who kind of kicked off the magisterial Reformation, the the mainstream Reformation, that they both had a sense of something like the total depravity of human beings. That is not, to be fair, not that human beings are as bad as they possibly could be, or that they're pure evil, but that their mind, will, and emotions, all of them, has been infected by sin. I like your illustration of the blue dye in a cup. If you take a beaker of water and you put blue dye into it, basically you would say it's still it's essentially water, right? But every part of it has been affected by the blue dye. Now, 
don't push back if you want to get into the dogmatic concerns over the idea that we're helpless or dead in our trespasses and sins in St. Paul or something. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the essence of humanity. Now, because Luther emphasized that human beings are uh, folks who have this bound will, bound in this fallen condition, that the best way to describe it is that human beings are basically evil. And many of my freshman students, especially freshmen who've come from a Protestant background, if I ask them, do you think that Christianity teaches that human beings are essentially evil or evil by nature? They would say, yes, this that, is definitely that, true. This, I would, that would, that's true in my background, too. That's I was, how you would have learned it. I would have learned it that way or, or would have internalized it that way. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't um, have objected to it. It you, would sound You know, normal. like, well, we're, we're sinful beings. And so, mm-hmm. you know, and then that kind of, it just gets confused with I am bad. Yeah. Now, sin know? means you're out of whack. Sin means that you are off on the wrong direction. You are off kilter. You are missing the mark, this sort of thing. And, and, and I think also because then you have that sin and that, you, you know, you're told that, that obviously that God demands perfection. Then you think that I, that's, that's all I am. That's your identity is mm-hmm. the sin. Because being. I missed that mark. But after Luther died, there were debates about what his legacy meant. And there was a curious fellow, interesting guy, named Matthias Flacius Illyricus. We can call him Flacius or Matty. Call him Flacius. Flacius taught that human beings are essentially evil, that we are evil by nature. And while that sounded very Lutheran, all of the other Lutherans basically got together and they wrote down in this thing called the Formula of Concord the idea that no, in fact, that this is a this is an incorrect teaching and it definitely can harm people in their consciences. And what they said was, no, 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 we are good naturally, but we have been bent. So for Luther, the the teaching was that we are in curvatus in se, that is, we're curved in on ourselves, or as going back to St. Augustine, who has a lot to say about human nature, he says that evil is not a substance. It is a corruption of a thing. It is a hole in a thing. It is a bending of a thing. And it's not primary. It is, it is derivative. It is, a, it is a twisting. It is a corruption. But this means at a metaphysical level, this is the idea of, of what reality is all about, what, what these things are really at their core, to say that human beings are essentially evil would be to say that God created something that's essentially evil. Hmm. And in fact, we're beautiful little melodies. Mm-hmm. We, are, we, are, we are wonderful creations. So it helps me and my, my limited understanding or whatever to think of it as, so we're, it, it's like we're mainly in that illustration of the blue dye, that we're mainly water with a, with a little bit of the blue, but it does, it goes, it, it goes through everything, right? Right. But we're not mainly blue dye with a tiny bit of water, but mainly water with a little bit of blue dye. And precisely because our true nature has been twisted and corrupted, that's where the ugliness is. It's not that we are ugly, but that the tragedy is so painful to behold. That when you see any person, that this this is a manifestation of the creative delight of the cosmos, of God, of consciousness. There, Here's this person that is beauty, just beauty, even tragic beauty. Mm-hmm. And to think, though, that there's a bunch of kids that come into my freshman classes that are, that are burdened with this self-loathing that they've internalized through false theology. So essentially what I'm saying is if these are these Lutheran kids, I get a, 
good proportion of Lutheran kids Mm -hmm. from conservative Lutheran backgrounds. And what they heard was the fellation error, something that's condemned by the Lutheran confessions, but yet still sounds kind of Lutheran, that we are disgusting. And this idea is that to be an Orthodox Lutheran, some of these freshmen think that they are covering themselves in this little banky, this little Jesus banky. But if anybody ever really saw what was under the banky, there'd be nothing but hatred and disgust. And that it is a, that it is a spiritual virtue in, in almost a way that if they almost flagellate themselves, if they, if they meditate every week at church on how miserably bad they are, then they will be more loved. Yeah. That's the only thing they can get. Now, one of the, the problems here is from the Book of Common Prayer, as it then comes over to the Lutheran world and the Protestant world in general in America, the translation of the liturgy, the, the form of Christian service and more traditional services, often will have a line that says, you know, have mercy upon, uh, 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 have mercy upon us, O oh God, we are m- miserable offenders. Mm-hmm. You know, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Mm-hmm. Now, this idea of miserable is important because miserable does not mean <laughs> terrible. terrible or loathsome. It means tragic, worthy of pity. Mm-hmm. And, and this isn't to take away the fact that human beings do all sorts of bad things to each other for right. which we, you know, and, 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 and have bent hearts, right? But even there, we need to be very careful because you, if you err at all towards that flation heresy, or not a heresy, if you err at all towards that fallation error in a Protestant context, not only are you not faithful to the, the true teaching of Protestantism, even if you were getting close to that and you were saying it in a way that overemphasized this aspect of the, the story, the, the loathsome part or the mm-hmm. miserable part, mm-hmm. this, is, this is terrible for young adolescents who are already dealing with acne and, and <laughs> yeah. being picked on in the bus. You know, I mean, like, yeah. wow, that's a, that's a heavy, heavy burden. And the traumatizing, the, 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 the tormenting nature of this and some, you can't teaching. escape from. You can't escape yeah. from it. Every you day, now have you a go. whole lifetime of this, by the yeah. way. You know, I, I, I like uh, when you talk about the... Cover the blood of Jesus. Yeah. But me, myself, I don't want to examine that. Keep going. I'm sorry. Um, I like when you talk about the orcs. You've used that sometimes in... Yeah, in that's probably a little bit better than the fallacious <laughs> illustration. A little bit more accessible. It, it, yeah, it helps me. There's a, there's a scene in, in The Lord of the Rings in the book, not in the movie, where Frodo and Sam are checking out, kind of spying on some orcs. And as they look down, Sam is confused. He says, it's strange here. I thought that the orcs were going to eat, you know, tar and drink poison, but it turns out they're eating kind of normal organism food, you Mm. know. And Frodo says, that's right, because the Dark Lord cannot create its own thing. It can only corrupt something else. So many people don't realize that orcs they are essentially elves. elves. Mm-hmm. Now, this is very important. They're essentially elves, but very dangerous. Mm-hmm. They're essentially elves, but they, they smell bad. They, they look angry mm-hmm. and all this. And so it may be true that when we're talking to the average person, that they will confront in themselves these ways in which they act like orcs, they smell like orcs, um, they, they have commonly behaved in aggressive, angry ways or whatever, mm-hmm. right? But that they really need to learn to experience divine love, unconditional love, and in experiencing this, recognizing that they should start to be free and invited to walk a little taller, like elves, mm-hmm. be elvish. 
And this is not so that they can be loved. No, they already are The loved. unconditional love gives them the permission to have compassion on themselves for being these twisted, tragic characters and standing tall and, and repenting. So here's the thing about repentance. Repentance is what the church needs to do. Right now, the, the, and I say the church, I just mean, um, you know, Western Christians, right? But right now, the, the volume is up a little too loud on the, the church is telling people outside of the church to repent mm. in the way that they've been doing it. I think there's a really positive way to do this. And that is to say, man, we are, we are barking up the wrong spiritual tree here, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's money or fame or what, I mean, how good looking you are. I mean, there's, there's ways that, that Christians really need to increase their prophetic voice, but I'm talking about kind of condemnation of people, drug addicts for their sexual lives, whatever that this, this external language calling other people to repent, turn the volume down on that, turn up the volume on repentance for the ways in which there has been spiritual, financial, and sexual abuse of the members of these churches. Mm-hmm. Now, to do this is hard, but it's the only way forward. But here's the key about re- repentance. If you haven't been to church, maybe it's a word that sounds scary, like a fire and brimstone thing. If you, if you replace repentance with awakening, or Martin Luther did, uh, did it as coming to your senses. Right. Then it, it's, it's like, more an, like an aha. It's moment. an aha moment. It's enlightenment. So repentance will lead to you thinking of people in different ways. So if I if I repent of the way I viewed money, I might be less scroogey, right? <laughs> if I repent of the way I view women, I will almost I can't imagine I can't imagine that somebody who really understands the nature of power dynamics in a workplace and and cares about women intentionally sexually harassing them, right? right? Because they view women differently. That man is not going to be more restrained. They're not going to be like, you know, I'm not going to eat an extra cookie. They're going to say, that doesn't seem like a, a fun thing. It's, it's, and like you mentioned in your, in your book, Sexy, like what kind of person do you want to be? Right. right? Like who, right. who do you want to be? So certain behaviors after you repent feel off or seem ugly to you or right. less attractive. Mm-hmm. But that's not the point of repentance. Repentance isn't like getting... Straightening up yourself and pulling yeah, together, putting like your act together. It's, quitting smoking. It's seeing it in a different way yes. so that you then want to abandon that practice. It's turning around. Now, in the old Latin, you know, this is really part of the, the whole Protestant-Catholic divide in the 16th century. St. Jerome interpreted uh, this this language of metanoiate, the Greek to often translated repent, as uh, penitentium dare, which is to do penance. It's something you got to do. Like, you know, now I've got to pay God back. There's this moral arithmetic that I've got to... Right, or, right. Or the calculation. Uh, but, but then when, when Luther switches it over to saying, no, it's, it's awaken, then we come to this, that repentance is a gift. Uh, uh, and it's a gift that comes through forgiveness. So in other words, repentance... In, in the spiritual sense, in a, in a Christian theological sense, isn't a requirement for forgiveness. It is the fruit and the gift of forgiveness. And it's a sign that we're ready to take Christ seriously and forgive ourselves and others. So repentance is when you're going to just put it all down. You're going to get the accounting book and just toss it in the trash right. and say, instead of spiritual, moral, transactional bean counting, we're going to treat each other as if we're all in this together. And we are going to recognize our own sins 
but we're also going to discern the misbehaviors of others. We are going to love ourselves even as we peer into the darkness of the inside of us and also as we look at the tragedy of other human beings. Right. It is hard, but I tell you, I tell you what, it is so healing. And to the extent that you hit this when you meet folks of faith, then you can almost find yourself saying, for all the things that make it uncomfortable to be part of religious communities, if I could just bask in that, this world that is able to both love unconditionally, forgive and repent, but also take sin seriously. Right. And sin, again, being just any shenanigans that are off off kilter. It reminds me of when we were at a a conference, how I kind of like thought about the idea of law. I mean, gospel, law, gospel. I know that Lutherans, we always tend to talk about law and gospel. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that you, you know, you hear how you've done wrong and then you hear the gospel and how Christ is. The law kind of knocks you down and humbles you. And then you're brought back up by the gospel. You're lifted back up. And so this is a very, you know, very nice little move. But but I realized that um, at least for me, what was effective about that conference was that at first I heard the gospel. I heard the unconditional love that, you know, that I was surrounded by and could then feel comfortable enough to peer inside into some of the darkness that I realized some of, you know, the things like the sinful things I had done. Um, and I'll talk about it a little bit more later, but even just some of my own self-righteousness. Um, but I was able to see it clearly. Because you didn't I, have to be defensive. Yeah, I didn't have to be defensive. And then after you do all of that work, you just need back to the gospel you need to hear that you are loved that Mm. you are already forgiven you didn't have to recognize it to even have already have had that you know that grace to you um but you you, you're able to experience it so you first need to feel comfortable then you could do the surgery and then you need to get that love again (laughs) you know now now that it's all better this at a at a very practical level is is incredibly important because the two models that you could see in this or just even from an outsider's perspective, like night and day. The idea that I'm going to first scare somebody with hell so that they're primed to accept the medicine that I'm going to give them can be tormenting in its own, right? Now, whether it's true or not, y'all go read. Talk to your pastor, (laughs) your priest, your spiritual guide. But what I'm saying is that at least in, in, in our version of Protestantism, that is the the classical evangelical, aka old school Lutheran approach. There's this there's this idea of universal objective justification. Now, this is I'm not trying to take us into the weeds here, <laughs> but there is a there is a problem here. Now, a problem being, how do you see the average clump of humanity, right? And how do you think God thinks about the ag- uh, average, average clump? clump? Now, in the Lutheran world, uh, we're allowed to say, as you go around and meet somebody you know, uh, God loves you before anything else is discussed. But there are traditions, I got to say, you might, you listener might be a part of one that says, no, God basically is in a state of hate towards people if they're not elect. That'd be maybe like a reformed version of Christianity. Or you might be a conversionist kind of Christian that thinks God's kind of your enemy until you believe in his boy and then because you believe in his boy, that's the secret pass, then he'll love you. Right. In both of those cases, I hope you realize, friends, that, well, in the case of conversionism, that, that idea that God loves you when you cry enough about your sins and embrace the religion of his son. What that looks like is the idea that God 
is going to forgive you or love you based on something you did, it's very small. That is, you decided to believe and follow in mm-hmm. this religion, but he's going to forgive you because of that, or he's going to love you because of that. How that differs from medieval Catholicism is, is, is only a matter of what the criteria are. So for the medieval Catholic, it's what you, did you do your best of these good works? So you're going to merit eternal life through works that are embodying love. For, the, for this conversionist Protestant, God's going to love you if you put the right, you know, you fill in the right bubble on right. the multiple choice test when you get to the pearly gates with St. Peter. Jesus. And if you say something else, then you're, you know, damned because you got it wrong. Okay. Now, that is, I will say, very different from the idea that the default is love. Mm-hmm. Now, so friends, if you're, if, you're, if you're looking around at the options, or if you're in one of those options, just know that it's going, to, it's going to very much affect your view of who God is. Does God love everybody and then let them exclude themselves from that love? That's one model. Or does God basically not love you unless you get the secret password. Those are just different ways of right. seeing things. And you, again, you've got to work this out. But in, in the version that I think makes the best sense of the, the ancient tradition is that you are forgiven before you repented. Yes. And that you can repent because you're forgiven. It's a sign that we're ready to take that, 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 that work seriously where that, the great physician, you know, is able well, to do surgery And believe in that love seriously enough. Yeah. That... Whatever you find in there, it's okay. Let me just give you one uncomfortable example. Just when we're just when we're going to get ready for a break, let me give you one uncomfortable example. When I was a, an administrator and professor at a, a university, Christian university in Colorado, I ended up um, having these interesting interactions with uh, a, a mega church in Colorado Springs run by a dude named Ted Haggard. Ted Haggard was talking to the president. Weekly, he was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. He was the uh, he was like the guy in the region in terms of the evangelical voice in the culture. So he had a standard to keep up. Like he he was a very public figure. Yep. But he ended up having a real kind of calamitous public scandal where it came out that there was a male prostitute that said, hey, I've been with this guy when he's off speaking at places like my, my university, whatever, in Denver, and I was doing methamphetamines. Now, a lot of people you know, would rejoice in this, you know, but the thing is that... I think a lot of people have deep or be, sorrow. Or deep sorrow in this, uh, depending on the politics of it, right? Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is that he... Um, he, he, he's a very, for me, he's a very tragic figure. And I really wish him the best then and now in that I really, really saw that what had happened was he didn't have anybody in his life where he could be honest right. and share these things that were going on inside right. of so him. So his behaviors and drug use were a symptom of a, of a bigger issue. Yeah, that he couldn't talk. He wasn't with dealing people. with his sexuality. He couldn't. But why? Because here's the deal: he could go screw up, and he'd feel bad, and then he'd say to himself, "I need to, I need to stop doing that." And maybe Jesus will forgive me because the blood of Jesus forgives me. But I'm not not gonna I'm not gonna do that anymore. Okay, I'm gonna stop doing that. But what he could never really do because I don't think he had a place or a mentor that would help him to to do this. What he couldn't do. And you can see his, his, his special on, on HBO a while back. What he couldn't do is come to terms with the, the idea that God loves the 
part of him that he loathes. Right. He, yeah, he doesn't want it there, right? But it's there, right? Yeah, and, and more importantly, though, he like— He couldn't confront it. He couldn't confront who he, he, he was. was. He could confront what he did and the idea that God could forgive that. But if God really knew what kind of a, a, of a, of a loathsome creature he was, then he really wouldn't be loved. And more and certainly not the rest of the world. Not the rest of the Christian world, for goodness sake, right. right? So the people that he knew, if he was honest with them, they would have probably excluded him. From their church community. He would have been a pariah. He would have been now despised Apostate. as, as he, he would have been despised by his fellow religious people as much as he secretly hated himself just for telling his truth uh-huh regardless of how he viewed it in light of his understanding of scripture right mm-hmm. so so here's what this means it means that even if you don't like it and even if you're a real important religious leader or teacher this is a message for you it's a message for me and Stacy. It's a message for all of us that we ignore this idea of shadow work that is going to understand what it is about this part of us that Jung talks about that we don't view. Right. And so what we want to, and if we don't pay attention to that, it's very dangerous to us and our communities and our families. Well, and, and it's especially, yes, for anybody that is in any position of leadership to have thought this through because it your own insecurities or your issues, your fears, your doubt, it'll come out right. one way or another often, you right. know, um, and it, and it unfortunately can harm other people. Yeah. If you see um, my, one of my favorite students uh, from the old days, Daniel Billbrook was from a town that was featured in the documentary. That was a real fun one, but, but odd Jesus camp. Mm-hmm. And in Jesus camp, the, one of the kids goes down and meets Haggard and Haggard is, is speaking at the church and he says, We've decided the Bible is the Word of God. We don't have to have a general assembly about what we believe. It's written in the Bible. All right? So we don't have to debate about what we should think about homosexual activity. It's written in the Bible. I think I know what you did last night. (laughs) If you send me $1,000, I won't tell your wife. If you use any of this, I'll sue you. So what we're going to look at is the way in which that... Extortion. Well, well, but he's joking about it. But the thing is, is that's what he's worried about. Right. He's worried about being extorted. And so this is what we're going to explore after the break. We're going to look at the way in which... Not extortion. <laughs> no. We're going to look at the way in which uh, it is hard for us to, to kind of find or to identify and to confront this idea of the shadow self, but it sometimes will come out in various ways. And in this case, it came out in his sermons. He was literally preaching against the very thing that he he worried about inside. Yeah. And this happens all the time. It's kind of like a version of the Freudian slip, but we're not talking about Freud. We're talking about Jung, and we're going to get to that Jung on the shadow self to Swiss pastors after the break. And a fun game. And a fun game after that. Yes. We'll be right back. So we're back, Stacy. I want to say again, Carl Gustav Jung, uh, a, a a really interesting guy. Probably more of interest to religious types, people who are interested in world religions, spirituality, etc., than most psychologists. Though there are depth psychologists and others that still are operating, and I'm uh, I'm all excited about it because 
I think that they're doing different things. Clinical psychologists and folks who are doing research and counselors and all these different people serve different little niches in the mental health world and in the research world. But Jung and even Freud, I think are important from a philosophical and religious, are important from a philosophical or religious perspective because they help us to think about things sometimes in non-literal ways. Jung is an interesting character because he, when he was a kid, went to confirmation class. He studied the catechism with a pastor in the Lutheran world. But the pastor did exactly what we're saying not to do, which is... He complained that he asked too many questions. Yeah, right. Like, so here's <laughs> He this, shut him down, Yeah, basically. he was asking questions, say, about the, the Trinity and... And sometimes it's hard to answer some of people's questions, right? Kids, honestly. Kids, can they can ask some very, very tough questions. But a smart young little guy named Carl wasn't having it. And he didn't end up being a pastor, right? And he, did, and he probably could have been. And it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if the creativity, the curiosity, the, the inquisitiveness was going to be honored by the clergy instead of this authoritarian move to say, basically shut up and listen and take notes. Memorize it and come back to me later. <laughs> so just one more example, dear friends that are educators in religious worlds, if you want to be successful, please take heed. <laughs> We're not saying this to, to, to be partisan or something. It's to say that even at the practical level, if you're an authoritarian educator, it backfires. Well, and if you don't know the answer to a question, you can say that. And That's, then... Go do some research and come back next Transparency, week. <laughs> honesty, that opens people up and invite them to consider this in a longer dialogue with you. Right. And you'll both grow. Now, uh, we're not going to look at all the different fun things he's got to say. He's got all sorts of fun things to say. But what I would like to do is go through a very important text, one of the most interesting things he ever did, and that is he addressed a group of pastors in Switzerland about the importance of examining their own shadow selves so that they can be better cures of souls to the people that they care for. So, Stacy, this is probably most of the text. Would you mind reading it for us? Not at all. People forget that even doctors have moral scruples and that certain patients' confessions are hard even for a doctor to swallow. Let me pause here for a second and say that, of course, he's talking about uh, doctors of the mind. Right? <laughs> yeah, not, not physical. And bec- yeah, because as this, this field emerges, the, the, the therapeutic side of psychology emerges in the modern sense out of the medical profession, and they've kind of been joined at the hip but severed in some ways. Yet the patient does not feel himself accepted unless the very worst of him is accepted too. No one can bring this about by mere words. It comes only through reflection and through the doctor's attitude towards himself and his own dark side. If the doctor wants to guide another or even accompany him a step of the way, he must feel with that person's psyche. He never feels it when he passes judgment. Whether he puts his judgment into words or keeps them to himself makes not the slightest difference. To take the opposite position and to agree with the patient offhand is also of no use, but estranges him as much as condemnation. Feeling comes only through unprejudiced objectivity. Remember, we were saying this, this idea of unprejudiced objectivity is, is what's behind repentance. And note that it doesn't do good to be permissive. The therapist, in this case, by saying, ah, don't worry about it, that's not that big of a deal, isn't resonating with the patient in this case. Well, and they've, and they've probably held on to this for so long. And so just to 
dismiss it offhandedly. Yeah, like what? Yeah. No, there's there's weight there's, here. Yeah, and it's like that. There's like a video. God's gonna cut you down by um, by Johnny. It was Johnny Cash video, but it was all of these these celebrities singing. God's gonna cut you down, and there was a certain kind of release. People recognized that the the decadence in Hollywood and the music industry mm-hmm. and, and just life is to be judged, but in a very fair way, you know, right, like, right. like, and, and to deny it somehow makes you feel like people aren't paying attention and there's no healing to come because, you know, if you feel sick and the doctor says you're not sick, that doesn't necessarily make you feel better. <laughs> no, yeah. you know something's wrong and yeah. you're just going to keep trying and well, figuring Unless you're a out. spiritual hypochondriac and we've met those, but let's, let's keep moving. <laughs> so this involves a kind of deep respect for the facts, for the man who suffers from them and for the riddle of such a man's life. I love that line, the riddle of such a man's life. The compassion he has for bad guys, but also the recognition of them as being these riddled bad guys mm-hmm. is, I think, one of the reasons why at a very practical level, people reported enjoying the therapeutic work that he could give them. It is a moral achievement on the part of the doctor who ought not to let himself be repelled by sickness and corruption. How can you help anybody if you're going to be repelled? Like, I was just thinking about this. If you're a doctor doing surgery and you can't stand the blood or the clogged heart. If you're you're a church worker and you can't, can't stand people going through crisis, you're probably in the wrong profession. Exactly. Yeah. We cannot change anything unless we accept it. Condemnation does not liberate. It oppresses. And I am the oppressor of the person I condemn, not his friend and fellow sufferer. I do not in the least mean to say that we must never pass judgment. And in this case, discernment is what we would replace that word with. Yeah, it's not that you should never evaluate these things or even say that they're morally wrong. Right. So, uh, we must never pass, we'll say discernment, when we, when we desire to help and improve. But if the doctor wishes to help a human being, he must be able to accept him as he is. And he can do this in reality only when he has already seen and accepted himself as he is. All right now, and this is especially for you kids going into like something like seminary or whatever your training program might be for spiritual guidance or clergydom. What he's saying here to these pastors is that you're going to be no good and you might be a lot of harm unless you're able to do this very serious introspection. You be honest with yourself first and figure out who you are. And you're not doing the introspection just to have these loops where you have negative self-talk. You're doing the introspection to, to honestly evaluate what you're up to. And, and especially for clergy, here's the thing. Almost all clergy go into it with perhaps some little nudge from something that might be unhealthy. And I say this because almost all faculty go into being faculty for something that might be not altogether healthy. I believe that faculty, on the most, for the most part, faculty tend to want to become professors for a kind of respect or adulation mm-hmm. for, their, for their intellect and uh, that glory is important to them. Mm-hmm. So for faculty, as an administrator, I didn't use it against people, but I realized that in many ways, people would often be more interested in a better title or a more respected position within academia than money. Mm-hmm. Money was right. not as money important. Money didn't matter as much. You would have done something else. For some people, money's big. But for faculty, they've already given up on the money thing. But to take away their dignity 
and not call him Doctor So and So or whatever is is a bigger problem. Now, f- now so faculty is one thing. But so if somebody does then hit that chord and right. give you the praise that you want or the respect or whatever the dignity, and mm-hmm. then you might be susceptible to viewing or being attracted to that. Yeah. Uh, that relationship or idea. So for instance, if an idea is a bad idea and you're a professor, but you want to be loved in the academy, you want to be praised, you want to have status in that regard, then you might follow a false path because I got to tell you friends, faculty are among the most like the population that I've found to be the most susceptible to peer pressure. Mm, <laughs> you know, mm. they've actually done some studies that show that the, the more graduate work you've done, the less open-minded you are because you've realized, first of all, you've done a lot of studying. So you kind of figured it out. You thought, but more importantly, you start to realize that often there are these parties that form, you know, these, mm, these you ways of thinking, team. yeah, am I a behaviorist? Am I a psychoanalyst? Mm-hmm. Am I a Calvinist? Am I an Arminian? Whatever these things are in your little world, you've got to pick your sides. And then you kind of, circle the wagons. Now, if you're a faculty member, that's one thing. But if you're a pastor, you might have gone in hoping for maybe glory or something like this or praise. Maybe that was the one place, you know, where people loved you. And so I I just know so many people that got into... Or you might just be so worried about your own sinfulness that you're just going to make it your life effort to explore that and to tell other people they're forgiven, but you have to also realize that you are forgiven. Now, do this with any of you. Because otherwise, all you're going to do is cast judgment out to your congregation. Right. And it's going to be very dangerous. Now, this does not mean that you shouldn't do what you want to do, whatever your profession is. It means that you should have a very serious conversation with yourself. And realize why why are you doing this? And therefore, once you realize that, you'll understand better what your weaknesses might be, your Achilles heel. If you're doing it for love and and, um, attention and affirmation, and that's why you're becoming a pastor, also be very careful that that's where a lot of these inappropriate sexual relationships come from on the maybe more adult level. I'm not talking about like dramatically inappropriate, but, but sometimes I think these sexual inappropriate behaviors have a lot to do with the fact that, that these pastors haven't really realized that why they wanted to be pastors is the same sort of motivation that causes them to want the love of some other woman say, or other people. And then it can maybe, Will come, come to fruition right. in the woman. But then we say, oh, okay, let's just, let's deal with this, this infidelity or, or whatever. Let's, let's, let's say that it's, it's a consensual affair. Okay, mm-hmm. fine. But uh, well, why? It, yeah, consensual. Well, I'm saying outside. <laughs> outside uh, the I'm, power I'm, dynamic. I'm saying outside of a power dynamic. Somebody you meet at the, at the pizza parlor. Okay. okay. Pastor meets a lady at the pizza, par- pizza parlor. I'm in this case, in this elemental world, assuming this is a conservative male pastor. And pastor goes in. And then ends up with this affair. But the thing, again, that need for acceptance was the thing to address, not a lack of willpower. Right. Continuing. And so acceptance of oneself is the essence of the moral problem and the acid test of one's whole outlook on life. That I feed the beggar, that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy in the name of Christ. All these are undoubtedly great virtues. What I do unto the least of my brethren, that I do unto Christ. But what if I should discover that the least amongst them all, the poorest of all beggars, the most impudent 
of all offenders, yea, the very fiend himself, that these are within me, and that I myself stand in need of the arms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy that must be loved. What then? Then, as a rule, the whole truth of Christianity is reversed. There, there is then no more talk of love and long-suffering. We say to the brother within us, Raka, and condemn and rage against ourselves. We hide him from the world. We deny ever having met this least among the lowly in ourselves. And had it been God himself who drew near to us in this despicable form, we should have denied him a thousand times before a single cock had crowed. Yeah. So what he's saying there is, Jesus tells us to love our enemy, but we have a very hard time loving ourselves, especially if we're in some position of religious leadership. Now, this is where I'm going to get a little, I'm going to get a little old timey. I'm going to get a little, uh, a little old preacher style here because let me, let me lay it down for you. No matter, and I'm serious about this now, no matter how far off the track you've gone, there is redemption. No matter how far, this is the Christian message. And it's hard for those of us who have really been ticked off by the way we've been treated by people in religious leadership. But just as, just as the Apostle Paul, who was persecuting the church, gets brought in, I'm serious. If you've gone, if you've gone real naughty, right, there is, a sort, uh, there is a way to heal, but it's going to take brutal honesty. And the longer you're not able to face that brutal honesty, the closer you get to imperiling yourself, your family, and others with, with monstrous ways of, of having to resolve these things. Okay? And I think you'll continue to live in your own living hell. Yeah, yeah. Here on earth so, right so now. So this is really, you know, repent. The kingdom is at hand. And as much as we've really got a kind of a bent towards caring for those whose voices haven't been heard or those who have been harmed by religious leaders, there is, there is hope and healing for you, but it's not going to come through denying the reality of what's been going on. Or what has happened. Or what's happened. Or your motivations, all of this. Now, the problem is, again, as we, as we realize, the shadow self is this unseen us, this part of us that we hide from ourselves and others. And so if you're going to do it, Let's do it in a fun way. <laughs> I, mean, this good. I don't want to get dark here. If you want to try to heal and start to get to some of your motivations, you got to find your shadow self. Now, we had a hard time figuring, how is it that we're going to figure this out? And we have no research on this other than we just think it's a fun party game, and it's a lot of fun. We've done this ourselves. We're going to have four questions. We're going to work through them, and they're fun party game questions that you could do with somebody you want to go on a date with. Maybe this is not the first date. This is, you're going to cry together. You don't want this. But a, a good date night, good conversation with a small group, I think. And it's a fun way to, to kind of almost Get have an icebreaker, ice <laughs> you know, whatever. I, I wouldn't say to all of them on your first date. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that could be a little intense. They well, might run. I'm just, I'm joking. No, I think you probably should. You, <laughs> you'll, you'll see, dear listener, in just a moment when we come back from the break.
right, baby, you got the questions. We came up with these as, as four ways to figure out a little bit about processing this idea of the shadow self. What are the questions? Right. So, and, and we're doing it with the idea that um, if you think of a celebrity or a fictional character or somebody that would be well-known in your circles. Or- Harry Potter, Tiger Woods, <laughs> Natalie Wood. I don't know. Any, Christopher any, Walken. Any or all. Yeah, yeah any of those. A-Rod. Um, so there's four questions that if you go through and think. So two of them have to do with uh, people that you admire. Um, and so the first one is who has qualities you admire and you also see in yourself. And we're going to tease these out. I'm just going to so go through So you like what you see in this person. Now, by the way, friends, as you're doing it, do it in such a way that you're focusing on the emotions that come up. So you think of this character. It could be Tom and Jerry. And you think about Tom the cat. And you're like, I really, I really like to, you, know, you, <laughs> you probably don't, feelings. but if you have that emotion, that's what you're looking for. All right. Um, and then the second question is who has qualities that you admire, but you don't see them in yourself. We will have these questions up at protectyournoggin.org mm-hmm. under the episode entry under podcasts. So yeah, if you go to protectyournoggin.org, go to podcasts. And then go to the episode three show notes and you'll find these questions. The third and the fourth questions will deal with characters you dislike. So the third one is who has qualities you dislike, but you don't see in yourself. Okay. And then the fourth one is who has qualities you dislike and you hate it about yourself. Now we did this with the family in the atrium. We had a lot of fun. I learned a lot about myself. I cried. We are going to share them with you. Stacy's going to share hers. We're going to share ours just to kind of give you an example of how this works and how you can process through it. So Jeff, what do you admire in others and also see in yourself? So for this one, I thought about the dude, the dude from the Big Lebowski. I, I, I love the way he's able to have all this nonsense going on around him. The world is collapsing around him. He's got all this trouble, but he's kind of just keeping it cool. He's surfing the Dow. So I sometimes do that. And I admire it, and I like it about myself, although I must say, sometimes that reminds me that, that I get a little frantic, you mm-hmm. know? So there is a little bit there, but that, that for me is an example of somebody. I like he, him. He, I, resonate, I resonate with him at my best. Are you employed, Mr. Lebowski? Well, wait, wait let, me, let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know, uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. And sometimes what you admire in somebody, it, it becomes a little more obvious to how you kind of miss the mark. You see mm-hmm. it, and, but, it's an, but you don't I want quite to be more like that. own it like that or whatever. So that's something to be, you know, you're, you're proud of yep. and, and, and you're going to become very aware when you're not in that state yeah. or when you're not feeling like that thing you admire. At the risk of ignoring the dear listener, I am a, a seven on the Enneagram scale and sevens are healthiest when they act like fives. That is sevens love to be uh, like really digging into all sorts of different things. I love flavors, exotic flavors, different places. I'm moving. You about. want to do everything once. You want to try everything yeah, once essentially. But the five is this, or moving into like a five zone is where you're saying, I'm going to have that creativity and vibrant exploration, but I'm going to focus it. So for me... And you're going to dig deep. Yeah, I'm going to dig deep. So that's subject. what, the, for me, this podcast is partly therapeutic because I, my brain's going all over the place and I just need a place to kind of bring that thought and creativity to share with the dear listener so that then somebody can feed it back to me. But it's all in one place, just mm-hmm. not in all these little scribbles. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing about number one. The, the question number one is important because you want to help a group 
or if you're on a date, you want to start to be able to say, hey, there are some things about myself that are pretty cool. Mm-hmm. There's things that I like about me, and this is what I bring to the table. And it allows you to brag a little bit before you go deep <laughs> on the rest of it. What was yours? Um, so I had thought of um, – yeah, it's it's funny too, really quick, because you mentioned Enneagrams, and I'm I'm a six, as I had mentioned before in another episode. And what I found when I was going through this exercise is that it was a lot easier for me to like figure out what I'm not than mm. it, what it is that I am. Yeah. So it's like, no, 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 not that, not that, not that. But like, I couldn't, you know, but anyway, the one I landed on was Samwise from Lord of the Rings. Sam Gamgee. What I admire about him is that he's willing to go outside the Shire. So he's willing to go outside of his comfort zone. And this podcast for me is going outside of my comfort zone. I mentioned that I'm an introvert. Mm-hmm. And, and now you're sharing all this stuff with a bunch of people. Right. And and so I and I often have just a small number of friends or whatever, yeah. you know, that I I tell things to or whatever and somehow I guess doing it in the, the safety of, of St. George here. Yeah, it feels know, like it's just us. It's and the just dog. us. So it makes it a little easier. But I do appreciate that Samwise chose, Sam Ganji, he chose to go outside of the Shire. Because there was an evil he and needed there, to overthrow. There was, yes, and there <laughs> was, was a mission yeah. that was worth it. And yeah. I feel like this is a, a mission that I'm passionate about and it's worth it for me. And it's been hard. I mean, even doing this is hard for our relationship sometimes because I'm ready to just go, go, go. I'm like, let's record. And you're wanting to make sure you've got your research and the notes all you know, ready right. to go. And, and, and it's important for us to recognize these things, but the, the, the fear that comes from going into this world where you're not a, you know, you weren't a professor and, right. and, and, and broadcaster. And, and similar to sort of Sam, I feel like I'm not like the, the strongest person, but I'm, <laughs> yeah. but I'm willing right. if I'm needed. Yeah. And right now I'm going on this mission with you. <laughs> um, anyway. Because sixes. And because I'm loyal. Loyal. Yeah. So it's loyalty to the mission, to friends. To, yes. To friends. One thing I recognized with Sam, when you mentioned that you can also kind of hint on what you're not. What or uh, or part of your shadow self though is his. I, I kind of wish like he he has so much to offer, and could he just like doubt himself a little bit less? And I mean, yeah. he he offers a lot of encouragement to Frodo, but he's also a strong character, mm-hmm. right? But he acts in sometimes more timidly, and that's exactly what right. I do. And I don't, you know, I think that I need to be more bold. You you'll come out and roar on occasion, but it's not your natural move. And well, that brings me to my next one. But so number two, what do you admire in others but do not see in yourself? I went straight to Alex Honnold who is the character of the documentary Free Solo, because I am terrified of heights, just absolutely terrified of heights. Now, one thing I should mention is I've mentioned some of these things. If you want to check it out, I go through some of these themes in a video that we'll have on the show notes this May, this last May, at the Mockingbird Conference. I touch on some of these things. So you can share some of these in a video form if you'd like. But uh, I think what's nice about this podcast is we're going to tease it out a little bit longer. But uh, let me tell that story again in case people haven't heard it. And that is when we were in, uh, we were in Tampa, there's this bridge that goes over the bay. And I, I don't know if it's got a, a technical name, but it's this big it arch. Just, and you, when you're looking at it, you just, you don't see the top of it. So for a dude that's scared of heights, I'm just going higher and higher and higher. And it just feels like I am steeper losing, and steeper and steeper. I am losing touch with where the ground is. Now I start to hyperventilate. I'm freaking out. I am just beside myself, but I, I feel like I'm going to faint 
and I am ready to grab the wheel if I have to. But like, that's going to be worse. I can't pull over because then we're gonna, I'm going to cause an accident. But if I faint, I'm going to die. And this is just horrendous. I get to the other side, and the first thing I said was, baby, I am so sorry. Now, this gets now a little closer to what we're talking about with the shadow self. Because sometimes, you know, it's your own wickedness, but sometimes it's your own shame for things that aren't really your That's something you can't control. And I think it was really important for me as we were doing this exercise to realize that I felt so ashamed that, that Stacy had to take over the driving, that I couldn't be a man enough in my mind to go over the bridge. But one of the things, uh, if you, if you, if you really think about it, um, the, the, the interplay that you talked about on episode two between the body and the mind mm-hmm. is so much more important than we used to realize. And that is that my body was having this panic and there was nothing I could do at the moment for my brain to tell my body to stop having my rapid heartbeat. I was on alert, you know, and the one thing though was my disgust with myself three quarters of the way down didn't alleviate the tensions that made it worse. Right. And so the, the, the self-loathing and, and shame was not helpful. And trying to wish it away yeah. also doesn't help. But what we've learned, Stacey, there's a practical lesson in this shadow work. Yes. So if there's a bridge, I should be driving. Yes. <laughs> you know, if there's something that involves the heights. And, and, then... I, and I just face it. I face that as a reality. I have mercy upon myself. You have mercy upon me. And we keep moving. Right. What about you? For me, it's Lena Dunham. From, from girls. girls. Yep. And there's a, I, she's a lot. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But what I, what I admire about her um, that I don't have is just she is bold to just be not ashamed and she's bearing her entire self. Even Sometimes her nudity. Her nudity. Yep. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, it, and it's to everybody. Yeah. And it's excruciating, but amazing. It's like a, it's like a trapeze artist. Right. So not, some people don't like it, but that's not the point. The point is, is that she is hiding nothing. She's showing all of who she is. I, I think that, that that that's empowering when she can she doesn't have to hide behind anything, right? Mm-hmm. The point of it is is that being real with who I am and not having you know I I, I want that like I want and it's something I'm working on, right? Mm-hmm. I usually have to trust first and then open up, and I think it's important to for me just to be who I am. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and no apology, body image issues, that sort of thing. You admire somebody who is doing something that your shadow self would never allow you to do. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's an important piece. Yep. And so you're looking for the kind of boldness you might take in a different direction, (laughs) (laughs) but she's, and especially you're talking about Lena Dunham's character in girls. Correct. Right right on. Number three. Number three. What do you disdain in others? but do not see in yourself. For me, this was easy. It's Sweepany Johnny, the villain from Karate Kid. Now, when, when I saw that movie, that was, that was like Homer's uh, Odyssey. That was, that was, that was this am- amazing, important movie where little Daniel's son, he, he has no dad, he's got a crappy bike, and he's got one mentor in his life, Mr. Miyagi. His mom moved from Reseda, I think. I forget. Yeah, he he's, moved, he's, he's, I don't know. he's the new kid on the block. New kid on the block. He's getting. He's got this 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 gal he likes, but he's getting picked on. Listen, from taken from a scrawny kid, it got beat up nine times in nine fights. Karate Kid was my movie. <laughs> Side issue, acting class, Los Angeles, 
1988. I'm in a class with the, the famous vaudevillian, classically trained actor, Billy Barty. Little person. Billy Barty. He sees that I'm about, he, he's, the, he's the guest master class teacher at this, this class in Los Angeles. I come in and I, he says, you, you got to do a scene from your favorite movie, the most impactful movie. And uh, I, I brought in a scene from The Karate Kid. And Billy Barty, great legend of an actor, almost walked out of the class and I cannot put up with this. This dork, he didn't say dork, but this kid is coming in here <laughs> to, to do a scene from The Karate Kid. Like, what, what, what is, what do you, how do you disrespect me this badly? You know, this sort of, sort of thing. And I, I don't think I did a good enough job after he said that to convince him. But for me, it really was powerful because Sweepy Knee Johnny is this bully. And I look at this guy and I say, I'm not like that at all. I don't even know what wellspring of, 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 of monstrosity this dude possesses or any bully possesses to want to just be cruel to somebody. Right. Right. Now, two things happen as I reflect on this. First, I realize that there needs to be more compassion on my part, even though I'll stay away from these guys, for Sweepin' E. Johnny. Because if you go to Karate Kid 2, you see, the beginning of Karate Kid 2, we, we find out <laughs> that Sweepin' E. Johnny was being uh, physically abused, abused by, his father. by his father, or maybe it was the, maybe it was the coach, I forget. Uh, but regardless, he was being physically abused. He was in that world of abuse. He was a victim, and now he's becoming a victimizer. Discernment, guilt, is that he is being a victimizer. Shame can be removed as he realizes the tragedy that gets him into the situation. Having mercy upon himself, having mercy upon others is the way of Jesus and the Tao of, of peace. But the, the key here is that that first part was really helpful for me to start to learn to have compassion on the bullies that have throttled me. Okay? But the second part is more interesting to me. And that is that really why I hate him is because I had shame for being a scrawny kid that got beat up, that wasn't worthy of the good-looking girl, Elizabeth Shue or whatever, mm -hmm. that wasn't worthy of respect because he lost a fight, that was poor, that didn't have a motorcycle but had a crappy bike, that didn't have enough money to have more than two pants in, in 1986 or whatever it was, that I internalized that shame so much that there was a secret part of me that said, I hate that guy because he sees that I'm weak and I am disgusting and weak. So I had to both forgive in this process Johnny Sweepany and also myself for being Daniel's son in a way. Gotcha. What about you? For me, I chose Nellie from Little House on the Prairie. That's an old, old one. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Very old one. She is a, a tattletale and she's really mean and she can't stand to see other people like succeed or do well. She's right. just, she can be jealous. And I just like... Th that kind of person just irks me. Like, so I'm thinking, what is it about her? If, if, if I, I don't value her values. And so why would I let her get underneath my skin? Yes, I see. She and upsets you. And of course she is set up so, by the creators to upset you, but yes. But if she's, she could be a mean girl that I'm just like, okay, she's a mean girl and I right. don't have to let it affect me. Yeah. Right. Right. As you're doing this work, you want to find who is it that really, yeah. Strikes a nerve. So, and I realized that with, with, I, that, that the, I guess the shadow self alert for me is that I care too much about other people's opinions. Mm. Um, she, ah, and that injustice of that. Yes. Mm. 
she's she's so evil to the nice but she doesn't <laughs> wilder physic- girls. But she doesn't and- she doesn't physically hit them. No. It's it's her attitude and her words that Right. Yeah. And so she wouldn't get underneath my skin unless I let her get underneath my skin. Mm. And and so I need to not let other people who even in their meanness uh have control over that. Yeah, part get in, of you. get into yeah. me, um, or at least recognize that it's possible that they can have that control. Correct. Number four. What do you disdain in others, and also see in yourself? And so here you have to confront, like, just that that cruel disgust for yourself. It's the hardest. It's the hardest it's of the them. Hardest if you can get one. to four on the first day, that's that's uh, that's going too far. That's like you've got a home run in the bad sense. <laughs> Slow <laughs> right, it down. Right. Slow it down. Take your time. Unless you're just having a great old time with a couple uh, glasses of wine. Uh, here's a here's a quote from uh, the the movie Tombstone from Doc Holliday because this is a this is a great way to kind of illustrate this principle. You must be Doc Holliday. That's <coughs> the rumor. You retired too. Not me. I'm in my prime. Yeah, you look it. You must be Ringo. Look, darling. Johnny Ringo. The deadliest pistol ever since Wild Bill, they say. What do you think, darling? Should I hate him? You don't even know him. No, that's true, but... I don't know. There's just something about him. Something around the house. I don't know. Reminds me of... me. No. I'm sure of it. I hate him. He's drunk. So it turns out that what you often hate the most Mm -hmm. is when you, you see yourself in somebody. Uh-huh. And this is actually probably why four is is both the most difficult and the most I- instructive. Right. If you, as we said before, if your pastor has preached for five straight weeks on the dangers <laughs> of the sodomites, he's probably gay. <laughs> if you are in a room and there's a gal who's constantly judging other people's bodies and outfits, she's, she's not comfortable with herself. Somebody who knows they're hot, never. Now, I want to restate this young people especially, somebody who knows they're hot never has to tell you that you're not. Somebody who tells you that you're not hot is only trying to establish some kind of pecking order so that they can cover over their own self-loathing, right? So just keep that in mind. I know that sounds like grandma teaching you some old, old-timey uh, advice. <laughs> no, it's true. But it's totally true, all right? So who is your person? So my person is uh, Justin Bieber, right? Now, Justin Bieber, when he came on the scene, there were some YouTube videos and my family members instantly just kept almost spontaneously, like popcorn, you know, all popping off in different parts of a pan, deciding that they needed to forward this to me and tell me, look, this guy reminds us of you, which <laughs> I said, of course he reminds me of me, and this is disgusting, and I'm so upset with this fact. I was so upset that they thought this. Now, you got to understand, I think Stacy mentioned that, that she kind of was, you know, into my 1988 garage band persona. 
as a rock star? Oh, I totally was. I, that's when I said I felt I was love at first sight. So if I go back to some of those old videos, I just, uh, I just, I'm so embarrassed, you know, because in those days, by the way, it was the 80s. You had Poison. You had Bono prancing around like uh, Mephisto. And, it, it, was a, it was a time and to, to be, be a little bit over the top. And to be fair, there were, it was a pretty healthy outlet for you you all to be expressing creativity, getting together. Oh, when you say y'all, I'm something. talking about Scott Copeland on the lead guitar. He's just killing it, you know, or like, a, you know, Frobro pounding on those, those skins, man, hitting. I'm just talking about me taking myself like seriously as Bono, but being in eighth grade. All right. That's, that, <laughs> that's the phenomenon that I wish somebody would have told me is. But that's is also, un- that's also uncool. what I think. A room of seventh grade girls when you're Fine, in eighth grade all screaming after well, you just, will create, But right? it's disgusting, right? Okay, so <laughs> aesthetically it's disgusting. This is my problem. All right, now here's the deal. Oh. So what do I learn from this? What I learned from the Justin Bieber thing is first, I need to have compassion on Justin Bieber, okay? He's got lots and lots of young ladies all screaming after him. But he him. also, if you've been following him in the news... Or as, had. Yeah, well, no, I sure, sure, I'm sure he still does, but... He, in the ensuing years, he's gone through a lot of a trouble. And there was a roast where they roasted him. And one thing I liked about it was, even though it was hard to watch, is that he recognized in a small way that he had been way off kilter, mm-hmm. that he had embarrassed himself in a way, in so many ways. And that becomes ways. tragic, right? And, and he's like, strangely, really, I think, connected to this group Hillsong, this, this evangelical group mm. out of LA. But the thing is, why did I hate him? I hated him because it brought out my own sense of shame. And it was this. Justin Bieber didn't have somebody to teach him how to be an artist without embarrassing himself. Mm. How to be a heartthrob, but also classy. Not be doing, you know, cocaine and dry. I don't know if he did. I'm sure he did cocaine. Well, driving and fast cars. And when you're and, so young and you have this whole, I mean, yeah. you have... You have all the money in the world, yeah, right? Or not, right. you know, a good amount of it He's anyway. Got all the money a kid needs. <laughs> all the, to get into all kinds of trouble. Yes. It, it, and if you don't have anybody as a guide or helping yeah. you along, it's, it's easy to fall into some really serious pitfalls. Yeah. So no, 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 uh, criticism here of like my old man or anything, but this particular part of my world needed a little bit of mentoring that I just didn't have somebody in position to to help me with Mm. you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. and that that a certain kind of humility with maybe david bowie uh, flamboyance would have helped my music career (laughs) (laughs) which by the way ended abruptly when i went off to uh uh to uh, the uk and probably for the for the better because the guy who replaced me in the band uh brought it into like a jazz fusion weird kind of fun thing that i could not have really tackled and there's so many things that you just need mentoring on but it's all right the fact that I didn't have that right mentor that could have helped me with that in that particular way is a tragedy that I can have compassion on. And it's not that big of a deal. It's all right. You know, it's all right. It just is what it was. Uh, Thank you very much, babe. All right. (laughs) But so is Justin Bieber. You see, this is, we're all in this together. Correct. So for me, I landed on Big Little Lies. It's the Nicole Kidman's mother-in-law played by Meryl Streep. Yes. And Meryl Streep and you have a, like, you could be related with your physio, physio, physical features in some ways. You look like you could be related. Perhaps. Okay, uh, I'll take that out. <laughs> I'm not against it. Meryl Streep. Okay, Meryl Streep. <laughs> Meryl Streep. One of the things that I 
picked up on uh, with her in her her character is her self-righteous thinking. So she justifies her terrible actions because she thinks she's right. So she wants to take she wants to try to take Nicole Kidman's kids from her because she thinks that she can do it better. She thinks that, you know, and, and yeah, Nicole Kidman's not a healthy character in that, um, that show. It's, but it's that self-righteousness that I realized that I, um, need to confront and it's for me it's not trying to take somebody's kids away but one one example for instance that my painful memory in our past was there was a time when we were moving and you wanted to set up the kids room really nice and i was the one that had paid the bills and we had a limited amount of funds at the time and I i was out of town but i'm doing all the moving by myself plus a few students that i paid and you want to surprise the kids and you purchase a tv to put in their room and I was upset. I was so upset. Yes, you were very upset. <laughs> I was, I was really upset. I was like, well, we don't have any money and this is how you, we have limited mm. funds and this is how you're going to spend it. And Meanwhile, I'm the dean of a college, uh, academic VP, and I feel <laughs> totally emasculated that I can't go to Walmart and pay 400 bucks for a TV. <laughs> the main yeah. breadwinner. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that you don't have, any, you know, you shouldn't make any decisions, but it was, it was that I didn't. I didn't see the value in that purchase, and so I just undermined you even making the purchase. Right. And, and because you thought you were right, there was no place for compassion in your, in your dealing with it. Right. Right. So that, yeah, so that I just, yeah, you need to know that this is not okay, rather than me evaluating one, you know, do we really not have the money for it? You know, we can choose how to spend the funds that we have. Side note, friends, we're against debt on the uh, emancipation side of things here. But we also have a, a, a great interest in saying that sometimes when you're with kids and you've got opportunities, go ahead and, and spend it now. Uh, because if you love your kids, go ahead and use the, use the money then at, at, uh, at that level of the joyful times. And feel free to get a little more frugal late in the game. Absolutely. Another characteristic that I see in her is her being passive aggressive. The way she talks to Reese, Reese Witherspoon's character, she said something like, "I, I've never, I've, I, like, I've never trusted short girls with, you know, like strong opinions or something like that." I can't yeah. remember, you know. And I guess that's pretty much telling her. But there, she does a lot of passive aggressive conversations to basically show that she does not, she does not approve of who. Reese's as a character or really any of that group of friends and where I see it for myself like (laughs) there there are times where if I've asked somebody in the like the family to do something uh, and when I've asked somebody when I've asked someone in the family to do something and then they're playing video games later or watching tv and they haven't done it yet and I'm like oh so you you know you have time to watch tv and then i might just go walk over and start doing that thing you know mm. that i've asked and like no I'll wait just I, I you know you 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 can sweep the floor aggressively <laughs> or, or wash the dishes loudly yes. you know yes. <laughs> um and so that's something I'm, I'm obviously you know i'm working on um and and try to avoid that because i realize that that's very toxic but I, I i see it in her and by acknowledging the ugliness of it 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 helps me to like, is that the kind of person I really want to be? You know, so right. even though I'm not doing it right up to somebody's face outside the home, or whatever, but it's very toxic to the our children, to mm-hmm. you, uh, when I act in that way. So in I, the other, 
Instead, I need to, I need to invite whoever it is in the family to a conversation and say, this is important to me. Yeah. Uh, how can we work this into the schedule or whatever? How well, it- that's, an, that's an important part of relationship healing that you say there, because one of the things though, we then sometimes would do and say, mom's concerns are annoying over the top and to be ignored. Right? right, so there's still something we could listen to to hear that you're crying out for this, but because you did it in the wrong way and we did something that was obviously bad, now we're in this kind of stalemate of of seeing the other person as an offender rather than somebody who's just looking to to work together to get to a better place. Sometimes I'm afraid, I'm afraid to have that conversation, but that's far healthier to acknowledge that, have that conversation, than to let it come out in very unhealthy ways like the passive aggressive behavior. So. The mother-in-law, if she she has her doubts about the group of friends because her son is the one that died and she's trying to think of like who, you know, try to put it all together and, and thinks somehow. pretty little lies. Yes. Big, big, big little, little lies. lies. Yep. Um, she thinks that the, this group of friends somehow something has something to do with it. Rather than sitting down with them and having a conversation and asking them straight up, she just passive aggressively gets at all of them just trying to, I, I guess, just sort of. Well, they're doing emotional warfare. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. So it doesn't matter what you learn, but it is important that you can learn some things about yourself by finding creative ways to get these mirrors, mirrors that will maybe reflect your shadow self. Yeah. And, and I think. Having compassion. And in, in, in that way, I really see that her, char- her character, she just needs to get her a life. She needs, she needs to, sometimes I myself get too wrapped up in, in the home. Mm-hmm. And what's going on that I can nitpick at those things that I see wrong or whatever. And if I get outside of the home, get outside of myself, yeah. then I would be less likely to then get caught up in those details that I find off inside the home. Very cool. So that's the experiment. We will be able to yeah, get that for you if you go to the show notes at protectyournoggin.org. After the break, we're going to address a question that was posed to us about the logo. Mm. Be right back. All right. Welcome back to our final segment. We're going to listen to Stacy reading a, a relatively long exchange we had with someone related to our, our oldest son's uh, logo that he made for us. We paid him. Uh, Protect Your Noggin logo is a blue-faced young person with purplish hair and an orange helmet. Just uh, you might want to go online if you don't know what we're talking about to make sense of this. All right, go for it, Stacy. What's the what's the note? So the note says, "Dear Hipster Jesus and Stacy." So I went to your session at NYG and I very much enjoyed all the jazz that you threw down so much so that I took one of those neat little stickers for your podcast. Little did I know that this sticker would end up lengthening some already sleepless nights in Minneapolis. You see, it's the lady on the covers face that I have an issue with. It's not that she has blue skin and hair or that her helmet looks to be made for military use, despite the fact that no military with an ounce of tactical know-how would equip their soldiers with orange headgear, but her mouth. What is she doing with her mouth? Is she chewing something? If so, what is she chewing? 
Is she doing that weird smirk where you only use half your mouth and think you look really smooth, but everyone can tell exactly what you're trying to do? So you have to hide that yearbook your pictures are in from your children out of shame? I need to know, and if you don't tell me, I can spread some really gross rumors about what she's doing, like chewing tobacco or bubblegum. Yuck. Sincerely, Brett. So let me take these one by one, baby. You jump in as you need to. Number one, hipster Jesus. I ain't hipster Jesus. I'm neo-hippie Jesus. I'm a neo-hippie Jesus. Old school hippies, a little stinkier than I am. I prefer to use a nice little concoction I've got of essential oils <laughs> and salt water. Try to stay smelling less like a, like a homeless person, even though we haven't had a, re- a rightful shower in about a week or so in the dust. Uh, but, but that's a side issue. Lady. Let's look at this question of is, is it a lady. Here's the thing. We, we weren't sure about the gender of this character, and we asked about it to our son. But before we tell you what he said, here's what we realized. If you have a, a sticker or if you've got it on your, on your computer screen, if you put your thumb over the, the left side, which would be the right side of the, the person's face, but the left side of the, the image, then, Stacy, would you do that right now? So if you put your thumb over the left side of the face, that is, from your perspective, the left side of the face, then you will see what it would look like if Augie did a, a, a kind of a cartoon version of his fiance. Now, again, he did not do this on purpose. We right. asked him. But if you look at it, it is half his fiance. And then if you move the, the thumb over to the right side, that looks very much like a reasonable avatar of Augie. So in one sense, it's kind of a everyone. Right. It's not, it's not meant to be male or female, really. It's, 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 it's almost more like, what, what do you see from it? Yeah. Right? It could be either or. It's definitely like a Rorschach test. You know, like, I don't, you know, it's like good art. You know, you got you to gotta <laughs> do some thought and thinking here on, on how this connects. But partly, I, you know, while I think that's accidental, partly that's also what we asked them to do. We wanted something that wasn't going to be just for one kind of person. Now, then you get to the question of blue skin. You, you'd passed by that. Uh, that is partly fun because uh, the, the two images of the orange and the blue are these colors that are, are really our, our family's official colors. We think about blood orange sunsets and the, the blue moonlight, this right. kind of yin and yang kind of balance. It's what we see when we're out in the mountains, when we see sunsets. These are the colors that keep striking our fancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also, in, in a way, it's, it's an otherworldly person. It, it originally, actually, Augie gave me something that looked like VBS clip art, and I said, could you make it a little weirder? <laughs> <laughs> and so we did, did the blue. Right, and then also with the orange helmet. This is an important one. Right, and it's not because she's trying to hide. Yeah, so in combat strategy, yeah, you probably... You would want <laughs> camouflage, or definitely, depending on the terrain of the area. And so this orange is going to stand out anywhere, right? So yeah. it's not it's not about trying to hide. It's yeah. about being protected. <laughs> yeah. So bring it. So it's you're you're vulnerable to confrontation if need be. And you're you're there standing your ground, but you're not hiding. And I think for a long time, you know, there's this sense in which people that need to protect themselves against religious wolves might say, well, I'm going to hide or slink back. Mm-hmm. No, our idea of outfoxing the religious wolves is saying, hey, we see you. Yes. We know how to stay just right out of your range. Right. And we, we know how to protect ourselves. Yeah. Then the other piece of it, her, her cheek. So the cheek is more of like, it's like this, I got your number. Yes. It's, it's, a, it's more a sense of 
empowerment of knowing. Yeah, and in some ways, I think we're talking about the idea of cheekiness, being being cheeky, being bold, being being somebody. I, I love what you said. You know, I've got your number. the The key, though, is that I think whether we give them permission to or not, a lot of folks that are observers of spirituality, culture, religion, these younger people, the the the, the students I've had have taught me a lot. There's a phrase, a Latin phrase that says it's docendo discimus, docendo discimus, which means in teaching we learn. So over the years, as I've, as I've taught students, two things have occurred to me. One is that most of the best stuff I've learned or books that I've been turned on to have come from my better students. And all of them are great, but I mean the students who are really engaged. And secondly, uh, I have this, this delight but also trepidation when I think about all the wonderful students I've had over the years that are now, they found a way to learn how to be in charge of their own lives. Mm. And it's not just because they're smarter or better people. It's because there's, a, there's an inherent value to travel. Mm. But in this case, you don't have to travel like some, you know, just tourist, colonial tourist, but rather traveling to meet other people. Mm-hmm. And that really helps you to sharpen your ideas. And young people in high school even, because they've been forced to live in a more global, a, a global community, or at least a larger community with voices that are very different from the ones they've been brought up with. It's not just the media, you know, like mm-hmm. in, in our day, where maybe the diversity we experienced was whatever we could get out of network television. But what their diversity is, is this, this broad like like chorus of different voices and they have to figure out how to identify the ones that they trust. Right, use discernment. Yeah. And so I'm not saying that everybody does that's younger and I don't mean, mean that everybody older doesn't. I am saying though that that by and large, that's what's inspired us in many ways to take seriously some of the things we've learned from students and then share them with the broader broader communities that we're in. Right. So that they can be empowered to to have that cockiness that the the character on our logo right. has. And one more comment too about the logo. If if you notice like the strap of yes. the helmet, it's it's not like super tight. Yes. And it's not like so in other words, like even that it's even like a little bit uh, off the side of her head. Yeah. So or his head. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, I mentioned because he yeah. mentioned people I didn't even uh, had never established a, a gender yeah. to it. Anyway, the, but the strap is loose and it so it's not that you know, if you if, if you needed it like a crutch or, or if you were a scared. handicap or scared, yes. then you would almost hide behind even that thing, yeah. right? And, and and it's just a safety precaution just, for the adventure that you're on. <laughs> exactly, and you know it, it will help mitigate some of, of the damage. <laughs> yeah, because there is such a thing as uh, you know mental manipulation that happens with groups and religious folks and so forth. So uh, it's not all about the helmet. It's not about the helmet. It's about protecting that head. Yeah, it's about the it's about your the health of your mind. Yes. It's not about you're right, it's not about the helmet. Thank you. It's not about the helmet. And protecting your noggin isn't about so much the protecting, but it's about taking seriously your noggin and your intuitions and your body and your emotions. And when you're tired, take a nap. In all of this, friends, little man Jeff, let me tell you something. Jeff and Stacey are now at this part of our lives. We're we're moving into the second phase of our lives, I would say. Well, there's like different phases. We're moving into a new phase of our lives when the gray hairs are coming in, 
we're still kind of youngish, but we got the gray hairs coming in. And whereas in the past, I, I offered people the idea that maybe I was like their older brother, you know, giving them some older brother advice. We don't know everything. No. We got a lot of blind spots, but we, we are now at a place where we can reflect back on our lives, raising our kids. We can't help lives. but share some of the things that we've learned yeah. along the way. Because uh, what would be yeah. the point if it was just for our own lives? Yeah. And maybe we're totally wrong, but what else? Are we going to shut up about things we've learned? No. And tell us yeah. if you think we're wrong. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> maybe might um, even have you be a guest on yeah, you, but you know, let's great. focus not yeah. so much on the I negative. I don't mind if there's things, yeah, but if there's things to know. But anyway, so here's the thing. So let me, let me just send you off, dear listener, with a couple nice words. Uh, first, Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As we go on this exploration together, we are going to be, every once in a while, getting the religious wolves in our sights. But we also have compassion on the tragedy and the riddle that is that person right. or that entity. The sickness is a sickness, but it is also something that even Jesus would say deserves our, our, our kind thoughts and our love. Secondly, a similar thought was said by Lao Tzu in the Tao Te Ching, where he says, there is no greater disaster than contempt for the enemy. Contempt for the enemy, what a treasure is lost. You see, friends, the kingdom of God, if Jesus is to be believed, is at hand. This is a kingdom of justice and mercy. I want to check out a verse called Micah 6.8. It's pretty simple. It's a just and merciful world that the best tradition from what we call in the West the Bible mm -hmm. offers. And in that kingdom, don't let people manipulate you through shame. Do not let people manipulate you by denying guilt when there is in fact guilt and trauma when there is trauma. Don't at the same time find that you have to hate people who have hurt you. But even as you don't hate those people, do not let them deny the truth. The kingdom is at hand because the banquet is already prepared. If you feel like you've done something wrong, you are forgiven before you could even say sorry. You can repent because repentance isn't a requirement for forgiveness. It is a gift made possible by a new logic of forgiveness. So you have nothing to lose, friend, but your self-loathing. And what's more, everything has already been gained. The universe is yours. So set aside your fear. Have compassion on others. Have compassion on yourself. Breathe deeply in faith. And until next time, friends, peace upon peace. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much.